The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work. And now that work is changing us. I've been at LinkedIn almost five years now. On the first full day I had at work, my boss pulled me over after a meeting. He's a guy named Dan Roth. Anyhow, Dan said, look, you you had your cell phone out a lot. We don't do that here. I was mortified. I'd been called out. And, you know, I'm a rule follower. Have been all my life. I felt like I'd broken one. But Dan was kind and direct about it, and it caused me to really tune into the ways that people are paying attention to each other here. Time together is that. It's time together. It's what helps define the culture of my team. And I gotta say, it's pretty good over here. People really respect each other. Today, we're going to talk about culture. You know, when it's really working at a company, that translates into productivity and success. But when culture is bad... Well, one of the biggest reasons people leave jobs is because of just that. My guest today is Dr. Ben Michaelis. Ben is a clinical psychologist. He started his work more than two decades ago, counseling people, individuals. In recent years, Ben is one of, well, really a growing number of people who have begun bringing these skills to companies. He comes to help shore up the relational element of a culture so that people can attend to the work. Now, full disclosure here, Ben is a really good friend. I've been talking with him regularly about these ideas since they began to evolve. You know, Ben saw the way the pandemic was crushing companies, especially those that were already fragile. People spent less time together. They struggled. And when quarantine was over and they began to trickle back to their offices, the new norms emerging around hybrid work meant that they didn't know each other very well. So along with a partner... Dr. Stacy Steele, Ben founded a group called, wait for it, The Group. It helps businesses strengthen culture through individual coaching and team building. Today, Ben will share his work with us and give us some key points to consider when we're taking on the challenges of our own office cultures. To get us started, I asked Ben how organizations are managing right now. Here's Ben. I think that the wave of mental health challenges that began during the pandemic is hitting us now on an individual level. Sadly, I'm hearing that a lot as well. And the uh, report by the uh, Surgeon General where he was talking about the loneliness epidemic was significant. And in companies, as cultures have shifted and people are working remotely or teams have changed, or they work with people they don't interact with in a physical space, the human dynamics are vastly different. And it requires a very different set of tools to manage effectively in that regard. How have you figured out how to even talk about what those tools might be? How have you discovered them? Like, What's the learning process been like for you? Well, I'm really grateful to have a partner on a number of different levels. Uh, Dr. Steele is fantastic, and that has been her trajectory, so learning from her in many ways. But also, the dynamics of individuals and companies are 
you know, in, so similar, right? Like an individual can have a block just as a company can have a block or a team can have a block. And it really is about trying to create space for that block to shift. What do you mean by a block? You use the word toxic culture I think that that would be an example of it where there is a lack of trust between people at different in different groups within the same group. That is a huge block because communication then becomes stifled. And just like with our intimate, our most intimate relationships, without trust, there is no relationship. It is the foundation of all relationships and developing processes based on each situation where you can enhance trust is an example. Right. Well, we talk about trust a lot in the studio. Trust is one of those things like oxygen where if you have it, you don't even know that you have it. But as soon as it's missing, you die, right? And and I'm not being overly dramatic when I say that. Organizations, groups of people cannot function well without it. When you're working with the organizations that you work with, Are you usually going in when things are so broken, they're at a point of desperation, or are you usually going into like moderately healthy organizations that need a little boost? It's a little bit of both, but it's definitely the former more than the latter. In the United States, we tend to focus on the cure and not prevention. And that's often the same in companies. Like they'll put money and resources towards things when things are bad. They don't tend, just to be frank, to think about how do we create this from the beginning or how do we ensure that there is a trusting, uh, healthy culture here? Again, micro, macro, it's the same thing in our our marriages and our relationships uh, and in our culture at large. Like we don't tend to think about things in a preventative way, unfortunately. So it's often that we get pulled in when there is a crisis. When there is a crisis. And if you think about that crisis as embodying lack of trust, like what does trust look like? Let's start with what's there before we explore how to restore it. Mutual respect that what you say has value. I value what you say to me and that I believe you when you tell me you're going to do something or that, you know, that you're communicating in a very direct way. When you're talking to someone on a regular sort of conversational basis, There are thousands of assumptions that are being made in order to have a back and forth conversation. I think that contrast is the essence of vision. And when you see the opposite of it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not the case. And so in order to have a healthy relationship, there needs to be a lot of assumptions that like, oh, yeah, we're on the same team. We have the same goal and we may see it differently, but we're both fundamentally aiming at the same target. And when you say that you're going to move your bow 10 degrees, I don't even need to think about it. I'm like, all right, Jess is going to move her bow 10 degrees. We're both aiming towards the same target. Yeah, that's the world I want to live in and more importantly for this conversation work in. Um, so when you're when you're working with these companies, what is, what is the work itself? And are you working with small teams or large companies? So it's a little bit of both. We've gotten a lot of inbounds for companies that are roughly 300 to 500 people. And that's not an accident. It's often... When, when you pass a thir- certain threshold of around 150 to 200, the culture can't be sustained 
on a one-to-one basis. It has to be transmitted in other ways. That's a natural uh, upper limit for our cognitive abilities, roughly 150. Does that number sound familiar to you? For longtime listeners of the show, it might. Ben's talking here about the Dunbar number. Kat Bellows mentioned it earlier this year in our conversation about friendships. Here, the question is workplace relationships. Either way, here's the bottom line. The British anthropologist Robin Dunbar figured out that once we're dealing with more than 150 people total within our lives, it can be hard to sustain relationships. Like Ben just said, once a company leader has to communicate with more than 150 employees, a one-to-one basis isn't really possible. So I asked Ben how leaders communicate once they've reached that point. It's a huge learning curve, and like most learning, learning really comes from failing at something. And so it's you realize it once something is not working, when you're like, well, wait a minute, this is what I said, and that's not what's being transmitted. And that's oftentimes when, again, things are starting to break down that the companies will come and reach out to us. Right. And then what do you do? So we almost always begin with a diagnostic if we can. We really sort of interview the different folks that are involved in a situation and try to say, okay, what is, where is the root cause of this? And then like any cycle, you can choose where to intervene. We always try to intervene where we think uh, it's like the easiest intervention first, and then you move up in the ranks based on that. And so, for example, with one company, they were having breakdown uh, on this one team. I interviewed all of the members of the team, and I realized, okay, the core of the conflict is between these two human beings, and it's radiating out from there. And so I actually brought them into my office and worked with them. This is still in process, but it has been going much better since that intervention in my office. So essentially that intervention relies on you being able to convince two individuals that they would do well to invest in working with you to sustain their relationship with each other. Well, in this case, is the company uh, has me as uh, I, I work for the company. You work for the company. But I, I love the point that you're making because I don't believe that anyone does productive work when they are forced to do it. Right. And so I spent time with both of these folks trying to make sure that this was true assent and not just like, my boss says I need to. Because right. if it's the latter, it's not going to work. Ben, this is such a 2023 idea. I mean, the the business world that I came into in the late 90s when I graduated from college was not one in which we paid enough attention to the inner caliber of our emotional lives that we would be able to have these conversations. I mean, therapy wasn't widely accepted at that point, let alone therapy within your company, which was a place that you just really tried not to talk about your feelings. I Is this like a fairly um, mainstream approach to how to deal with these things at this point? It's becoming more so. There's tremendous data about this where if you have a unhealthy culture, from a profit standpoint, it hurts you. It may not on a very sort of micro quarterly basis, but over time, besides issues with retention, you have resentment, you have more when people are in person, there's more stealing. 
There's people that actually deliberately try to get in each other's way. And so it is it is a newer concept, but it's growing in, in steam for sure. Okay, so you just chronicled the story of how you worked with an organization to diagnose the issue as being between two people and then going forward actually worked with those two people. But I could imagine that you also have situations where whole teams are just misfiring, malfunctioning. So then what does the work look like? So our work breaks down into kind of three different areas. One is executive coaching, and that's really where I started as a therapist, moved on to being a coach. I do a lot of that work. My colleagues do that work. That is often one-on-one or sometimes dyadic. It's two. We also do team learning and development programs. So we have bespoke learning programs, and those are all very experiential. We don't really believe in kind of pure, like, didactics. We don't think that that's people, the way people learn best. We didactics. Re- like, just like teaching in a more formal sense, yeah. like, you know, sitting at the board, standing at the board. Like, that's just not the way people learn. People learn with their emotions. We get them engaged in with each other using scenarios that they come up with for what's relevant to their company. So we have a whole learning and development program. And then we also do offsites with companies. Got it. And that can be alignment offsites where we're like, okay, what are we aligning to? What is our mission, vision, values? What is what does our strategy look like? How are we translating? Even if you have your mission and your vision, how do you translate that into very sort of concrete terms so that everyone knows what they're doing. And a lot of those offsites are therapeutic in and of themselves, just getting time with people where you're not seeing them as a coworker, you're seeing them as another human being. You know, that's something that was a pretty mainstream idea pre-pandemic when our time was mostly in person together. And so you'd have downtime, time that was daily spent A lot of companies that we um, have featured on the show have gone back to being in person most of the time, but there still is that expectation that you should only be at work together when you're working, doing work together. And whether that means more flexible hours or days spent at home, there's just less of that downtime, which like maybe the thing that we're about to discover is that we we needed that. Yes, I sort of think about it the way our culture has thought about sleep. Like, ah, sleep, whatever. It's like... You can sleep when you're dead. Yeah. Uh, And it's like the evidence strongly indicates that about 95% of human beings need roughly seven to nine hours a night of sleep. We just do. And it's like, okay, we've learned that now. We're not going to go back the other way. And the same thing with these, like, quote-unquote, offline behaviors that is what enhances trust. It's not just the, all right, Jesse said she was going to do X and she does X. It's that conversation about that about your kids, about shows that you like, about activities. That is the glue. And it's sort of like, you know, think about it in, in, inside of a, like a, a marriage, for example, right? You know that there is going to be friction in, inside of, of a par- partnership, right? There's going to be friction. It's part of it. By the way, there should be friction. <laughs> if there's not <laughs> friction in your relationship, it means you're not close enough to the other person and that's a whole other problem. So friction is good. The question is, how does that friction get expressed and how does it get resolved? And if you think about it in, from a almost like a 
forgive me, but like a capital perspective, if you don't have enough capital in, in the bank and then you need to make a withdrawal, we're going to have problems. Yeah. And <clears throat> saying to your significant other, hey, you look lovely today because it's true, not because you're trying to be manipulative or doing a nice thing for your coworker puts more relationship capital in that bank. Right. And then there will be a withdrawal. There always is. But when you have much more of that relationship capital built up, then you can make a withdrawal and it's not catastrophic. You know, I have seen in our own culture here at LinkedIn, outside of LinkedIn, um, a way to try to create some of that by, for instance, at the beginning of a meeting, doing a personal check-in where maybe you go around and you say what your favorite show is. But I got to tell you, it doesn't really work for me and I don't know why. Because it's contrived. I see this all the time. Companies try to do this in these very obvious contrived ways, and it doesn't work. When you know you're being manipulated, most people don't like being manipulated. And if you're oppositional, uh, you want to do the opposite just to show them. Right. And so it needs to be organic or certainly feel more organic than like, we're going to have happy hour at 5 p.m. That doesn't work, and it doesn't get people back to the office, by the way, for those of you who are listening and are trying to figure out how to get people back in the office, these sort of planned events fail. Well, what does work? Enhancing the, the experience between other human beings so that they have a good experience at the office and word of that spreads over time. It's not like an immediate like, oh, suddenly the switch is flipped. That's not the way it works. It's you gain a reputation, and then that reputation starts to feed on itself. It's a positive feedback loop. And by providing a healthy culture for people, that works. It doesn't work right away. It takes time. There's this big conflict between business and individuals, which is that business is based on efficiency. And humans are, by nature, pretty inefficient, right? Yes, but I think that if you provide an environment that is respectful, non-coercive, where people feel that they are making a valuable contribution to a team and to a company and to each other, they are more efficient. And there's, again, there's ample data uh, to, to indicate this. One of the challenges is this sort of short-term thinking that has uh, been endemic to companies for a long time. And we're seeing that switch right now with endeavors like, like long-term stock exchange and what have you that are looking beyond just the micro and the quarterly earnings. But that's, that's what's next. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around, because when we come back, we'll have more on shaping office culture with Dr. Ben Michaelis. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. We know that empathy is an important skill in today's workplace, that it's only growing more important. Now, this wasn't even a skill that was discussed, let alone expected, back in the office that my parents occupied when they were my age. So I wondered, how exactly do you teach empathy? I want to be very clear. Like, I'm not saying that offices are a place where everyone needs to express everything all the time. You want to be thoughtful about these things and, again, have and find safe environments. But this is language that we are giving to people, and people can see what they're missing, what the problem is, and start to understand that there is a solution to this, which often and honestly involves vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe that we've gotten this far in a conversation about this without talking about vulnerability. Is vulnerability something you can program? So I don't know that you can quote unquote program it. So I I had someone in my office two days ago and, um, She is a leader at this company, and she was very upset about some information that didn't get transmitted properly. And I asked her, did you provide a deadline? And she, like, froze and said, no, I just assumed it was obvious. And I was like, well, it may not have been obvious to the other person. It was obvious to you. And so... I was coaching this woman to have a conversation with uh, her counterpart on this, and my I encouraged her to say, hey, you know what? I realized I didn't provide a deadline, so this may have very well been, you know, partially my, my doing is the commu- communication breakdown. That is being vulnerable right off the bat. We'll find out how that goes. <laughs> Um, I appreciate that model uh, in particular because I think that sometimes we associate things like vulnerability with a certain boundary crossing um, that sort of leads into our personal life, like sharing and even oversharing, I would argue, aspects of what's going on in my life. And I think this is exacerbated by the fact that during the pandemic, we often couldn't divorce our personal life from the way that we showed up at work because they were in the same physical location. And now I... It feels to me like we're experiencing a little bit of a backlash around it. And so I want to, as clearly as we can, articulate the difference between creating 
an empathetically rich, vulnerable culture and an oversharing, personal life-driven culture. Because they're totally different, actually. They're totally different. The difference is real vulnerability comes from strength and not neediness. It's I'm sharing this with you because it's it's my truth. And yes, you can sort of hurt me, so to speak, when I provide this out there for you. Um, but the person that is actually sharing the information is coming from a place of groundedness. It, if someone is oversharing, I would argue that it probably comes from neediness. Yeah. It's a fine distinction, but you can you can see it when it's there, when you're paying attention. Yeah. Uh, and you can feel it. You can certainly, yeah. It's, again, like the difference between people think that arrogance and confidence are similar. They could not be more different. Yeah. You know, arrogance comes from fear and confidence comes from strength. Yeah. Well put. Um, well, thank you, Ben. I feel like we've learned quite a, lit a lot about your work, but more importantly, or at least as important, I feel like I understand a little bit more about how a healthy culture functions and maybe what I might be able to bring to that culture on my own to support that. Well, that makes me very happy if I can make one small contribution to you and to here at LinkedIn and to the listeners. Uh, hello, Monday. You are a listener from time to time. I am. That was Dr. Ben Michaelis. Visit him online at drbenmichaelis.com to learn more about his work. Now, there are three big ideas that I'm going to take away from this conversation, things that, you know, really stuck with me. I mean, first of all, there's data to show that an unhealthy culture hurts profits. Ben said it, so I looked into it. There's so much data. I found one study, for example, that came from MIT's business school. It said that during the pandemic, people were 10 and a half times more likely to leave a job because of toxic work culture than because of compensation. Second big idea here, the Dunbar number. Until you get to 150 people, a leader can set the culture by communicating directly with individuals. But sometime around there, it's got to shift if a company is going to be successful. And then... Finally, this idea that real vulnerability comes from strength, not neediness. This is an idea that merits more conversation. So this week, it's the theme of our show's office hours. Our community will gather on the LinkedIn news page on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Bring your insights, bring your coffee. And if you're not sure where to find us, send us an email to hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you the link. Now, before we leave you, a book segment with my LinkedIn colleague, Scott Ulster. Scott, how's your summer been? Oh, it's been good. Staying as cool as possible, trying to have some downtime wherever possible, and reading. Yeah. Well, do you ever read anything really light, like magazine light? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, my favorite magazine is actually the New York Review of Books, which is not exactly like reading. I feel like if I ran across you on a beach, Scott, you would be sitting there enjoying the sun with lots of sunscreen under an umbrella, reading a book that was like 372 pages long in micro print. I'm just guessing. But the thing is, I would, I would hopefully be like really excited to tell you about something that I just discovered. So maybe. Okay. <laughs> so maybe not so bad. So what is on the top of 
this week's reading pile. Well, we'll see in the spirit of this theme. I'm trying to go a little bit lighter. Um, and I just picked up a book called The Migrant Chef. And it's by a journalist. Her name is Laura Tillman. She's based in Mexico City. And what this book does is it traces the rise of a, a really incredible chef named Eduardo uh, Lalo Garcia. And he's had quite a, quite a journey. He started in his early life. He was uh, living in a, in a very uh, poor town in, in Mexico. And he ended up uh, coming to the United States with his father and his brother and eventually his mother uh, as a migrant farm worker. He was a picker. Uh, traveling all across the United States. And he um, managed to to find work ultimately in, in a kitchen and just really took off the same sort of determination and drive that he had as a picker. He just wanted to succeed. He sort of devoted to the kitchen. So what's interesting about stories like this is that it sometimes they they graze over the complications of actually finding your way from the kitchen to the place where your career can catch fire. So, Scott, how did this happen for him? Yeah, that's a good question. So Tillman, actually, she gives us a couple of, of clues how he, he rises. One is just what I described a little earlier. He um, had this just incredible, incredible focus and drive to to do well, uh, whether it was as a picker or, or in the kitchen, particularly with knife skills, he he had this extreme sort of competition with himself. So that's one factor. The other thing that really helped Garcia is just that effort, that ambition was noticed time after time, and he had this ability to win uh, fans in the kitchen. That is to me that was remarkable, and he didn't just earn people who admired his work. He really earned sponsors, people who wanted to advocate for his success. And time after time, throughout each step of his career, he he was able to, to garner that kind of attention. And I think that's actually what helped him really, really rise. And I think there's something in that for anybody listening to the show, whatever your profession is. Scott, give us one tiny detail that's going to stick with you about this book. Well, the truth is, is that this this man, Garcia, I mean, he did not have an easy life in any way. He was deported multiple times. He's not welcome back in the United States still. Uh, he spent time in prison. This is he, he's lived a life of adversity. And yet I feel like he um, he didn't let that hold him back. Number one. And number two, he didn't let that affect his generosity towards others. And so what you see is that I, I feel like throughout the book, you you encounter this recognition on his part that he was helped uh, by a whole slew of others, particularly people in the food industry. And he's willing to help others as well, whether that's hiring someone who doesn't have experience in the kitchen, uh, giving them a chance, or, you know, if a, a food vendor comes and visits and offers, you know, something that they're selling, uh, perhaps produce, he buys the whole cart. This is a man who really knows that it's important to give back and to pay it forward. I love that. Thank you, Scott. We look forward to the next book that you read and share with us. You got it. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadrone. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer makes our office culture truly lovely. 
Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.